All right, welcome to Irreligiosophy. Uh, thanks for joining us. We have what on tap today? What we have on tap today is a video that Charlie passed across to me concerning Dr. Turek and uh, Hitchens' little debate on whether or not God exists. Actually, very fascinating, and it's two hours long, just to give you that warning. So if you're looking for a quick little video, don't expect it to come from that. I think it's an hour and a half. Close enough. <laughs> Your attention span's so short that you can't. Well, you know, you can only accept so many things in short <laughs> bursts, otherwise your head explodes. <laughs> so this is a, a debate that I found on YouTube. I'm a big fan of Christopher Hitchens. I think uh, God is not great. A lot of it was really, really good. Uh, he got uh, sections of the, on the Mormon chapter wrong, and there were a few other things that I think he got wrong. What you have to understand is that Hitchens is not a scientist. He isn't a scientist. So he can't really discuss scientific things. Um, he, I think he's out of his depth when he does. Uh, but he, he is uh, a master of literature and uh, a really good journalist. And so he brings in life experience and, and history into the equation better, I think, than anyone else does. Oh, yeah. I mean, you sit there and you just listen to Hitchens talk, and you can tell that he's a very educated man, that, uh, that he's been around the block a few times just by listening to him, just his first opening sentences. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. And he holds no bars. I mean, he uh, he will freely insult um, anybody his, and everybody. The person that he's debating <laughs> and the audience. And well, uh, I watched uh, one um, blurb from I can't remember what it was, Inside Edition or something. Just after this prominent uh, preacher died, uh, he actually said, and I believe at the same time his his family um, member was was there, I believe, and he said that. If you would have given this man Jerry Falwell, that's who his oh, name Oh, Falwell, okay. If you were to give Jerry Falwell an enema, you could have buried him in a matchbox. That's how full of shit he was. <laughs> <laughs> wow, actually, I forgot that. You actually uh, were telling yep. me about that a long time ago. I believe uh, if you look that blurb up on the uh, that, that little um, blip on the news... I believe he was also pretty hammered at that time, too. He's evidently, yeah. evidently three sheets to the wind on during this entire debate. And, you know, the amazing thing is, is that just raises my respect for him. Not for the fact that he's getting completely plastered before debating somebody, but the fact that he can debate completely plastered. I would like to see him debate sober just to see if he's better or worse. Yeah. Like, is, is being sober his kryptonite? <laughs> <laughs> Does, is he, does he improve when he has a certain uh, blood alcohol level? Exactly. Maybe it's loosening his tongue up a little bit. Maybe uh, that's the reason why the, the insults are so easily flown. He got quite a few zingers on this debate. I was yeah. really, really impressed. But there are also um, a bunch of things that he didn't address. I don't know whether it's for lack of time, because he was uh, in an almost comatose because of the alcohol. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you take a look at this video... And as soon as he stands up, his face is bright red. I'm sure the little, uh, what was it, Pepsi or Coke he was carrying around was probably just filled with alcohol or whatever. He's misplacing his microphone and forgetting <laughs> to talk into it. Uh, it's really impressive. You know, it's like he's debating with a handicap, you know. it's he, He's on his book tour for God is Not Great. He went around the country debating all these theists and maybe he just has now such a low opinion of them he's trying to figure out how drunk he can be and still win the debate actually what i think it might be 
is it's like you and I when uh, when our family members come to us and try to debate evolution or how old the Earth is and so on and so forth. You and I just kind of shake our head and go, I really have to go through this. So his way to cope through going through this pain is to just get completely soused. It's, it's entirely possible. I think he handily won the debate. Um, oh, easily. any objective easily. measure, he handily won the debate. Uh, I am really not impressed with Turek. I briefly considered uh, buying his book and reading it before the podcast, but given that debate, there's absolutely nothing that was new. Zero. Yeah. No new argument whatsoever. Everything he advanced has already been refuted. And I, I wonder if it's intellectual dishonesty on his part, uh, or if he really doesn't think that there are any answers to these stupid arguments. No, no, no. This, I, I think this is the email problem. Someone comes through, they find something that sounds intelligent and sounds like it fits into their mold, and they pass it around, someone reads it and thinks, yep, that's it, and they accept it. That, that's the way it seems to me, because you're absolutely right. He is bringing forth these arguments that have already been refuted. And you just kind of look at him and you go, really? Do we really have to go through these arguments again? So yes, we'll go through the arguments again. Uh, Hitchens, I think, didn't spend much time at all on these arguments because they're horrible. Uh, he spent a lot of time on, on how uh, religion enables evil. Um, oh yeah, he hammered that a lot. In a, in a different debate, he was arguing circumcision with a rabbi, and he made a very good point that the only reason he is defending circumcision is because he thinks that a god told him that. If not, then genital mutilation would be indefensible. But since uh, he has a Bronze Age text that tells him to mutilate the genitals of young boys, uh, then he says, okay, I'll do it. Uh, but in the absence of that, there's no way that this uh, otherwise very ethical and moral person would put himself in the position of defending genital mutilation. Well, you know, you bring up an absolutely great point that Hitchens brought up. He actually said that God does exist. And the reason why he said that is because God exists in the mind of the person, the mind of the believer. And in fact, uh, he brought up one point which I found just absolutely great about the Catholic Church taking away limbo. And how this woman whose child had died before baptism, flat out stating, I know my child is in limbo. So therefore, God does exist in the minds of these people. Right. And the point about limbo is that these guys are claiming to be infallible, uh, and yet they have to apologize to Galileo, you know, 400 years later. They say, oh yeah, you know what, uh, that whole limbo thing, uh, we were wrong about that. And then... They're ready right back to get there, and they're infallible once again. Yeah, it's, see, it's that, amazing. That was uh, that was my favorite part is how they are admitting all these fallacies, and then all of a sudden stating, "Okay, we're back to good. Now let's continue forward in the future, uh, and we won't have any more holy wars." Sorry about that. All right, so let's let's start into the debate itself. Turek is a holds a doctorate, I believe, in Christian apologetics. Yeah. Which you remember we were talking to Becky Garrison, and she uh, was telling us that you know the, the theologians didn't want to debate with Dawkins because he's a bully and he doesn't believe that theology is a study of anything. Um, yeah, I remember that quite well. I, I believe theology is in the same position as philosophy was before it was grounded in science. Uh, before they had the experimental method and they tested their ideas against reality. Uh, basically what it is, is human thought that's limited only by the constraints of logic. 
Uh, that that is in a nutshell is what theology is. Uh, I, I personally believe it is a uh, it's an exercise in in logic. You know, you can have a conversation with other theologians and, and philosophers, and the philosophers will say, "Well, a god like this is self contradictory," and then you try to weasel out of it, right? Yeah, within yep. the bounds of logic. Um, one of the blogs that I read regularly, Feringula, P.Z. Myers, he likened it to this uh, massive laser, right? And they have this construct in the sky, and these philosophers are just blowing bits and bits out of it until you finally get this tiny, tiny thing that now uh, it, it's honed almost out of existence. You know, it used to be that uh, Zeus was up in the, high up on Mount Olympus, or God was up on Mount Sinai, but people got up there and... There's no well, one there. No God, so, so now they're in the sky, uh, right? Well, you get up there and fly around. Now they're in heavens. Now they're in a different dimension. They're always just out of reach. And that's <laughs> kind of what philosophy does to religion. Uh, it, it tells them what can't happen. And so now what you have is a transcendent, eternal, not outside of space and time uh, yeah. being that really you never actually communicate with because he doesn't interface at all except um you know briefly during periods of miracles you but, know, that's actually a very interesting way of actually of looking at theology and the study of it is that this very well might be in the beginning stages i mean look how long philosophy has been around we're talking aristotle's days so on and so forth even the pre-socratics and now they had thousand so on years to get there and however, theology has only been really starting to get chipped away at, especially in Christian theology, in the last few hundred years. Right. So you're absolutely it, right in that. In that they, sense, they may be in the the infantile stages, just just as uh, uh, philosophy was before, you know, before say Galileo, before you know, you, you'd you'd come up with atomic theories, but you had no way to test them. Or Aristotle would come up with physics, but he didn't really care to, to run through the test yeah. and check it. And only when we put the primacy on empirical testing instead of theory did we actually move forward. Uh, the the problem is in theology there is no and can be no empirical grounding because the thing that they are so called studying is outside of space and time and no one can contact it. <laughs> anyway, I, so I think theology is essentially imagination limited by logic. Yeah. Uh, now, just I, to warn you, when you get started into this debate, uh, you get Dr. Turek, and I use the phrase doctor loosely at this point because he's still studying, but uh, Dr. Turek gets up there and they're only allowed 20 minutes for their debate. And the fascinating thing to watch is that he spends five minutes of his debate trying to be charismatic, trying to win over the crowd. And uh, then you see Hitchens get up. He spends about, oh, 30 seconds thanking somebody and then moves right into the debate. I just found that very interesting. I was amazed at how much time he wasted. He, he went over the evidence for the Big Bang, which to me I wouldn't have spent any time at all because it is not a point of contention between you and your opponent. If you both agree on it, why do you lay out the groundwork for it? I suppose he did it because of the he launches into the cosmological argument and he thinks that um, he needs to establish the universe is not eternal in order to lay the groundwork for the cosmological argument. Uh, but if you can, you just say that well, everyone in the room accepts the Big Bang, so therefore uh, now we'll move on. He wasted yeah. like eight minutes. Oh yeah, and I mean we're not talking little little bits of explanation. He's going in. He's pulling out quotes from the astrologers who discovered it, so on and so forth, saying, oh, even they believe that there was a God, so on. 
it's just it's mind-boggling how much time he wasted. And I actually groaned audibly, out loud, when I heard him mention the, the cosmological argument. I actually started laughing. Dear <laughs> Lord, uh, this was advanced by Aristotle, for God's sakes. Yeah. Advanced by Aristotle and already been refuted. 2,500 years ago, philosophy has dispensed with this argument. All right, let me back up. Cosmological argument, for those of you who are not familiar with it says um, there is no infinite regress. You cannot have an infinite chain of events. In one of the books I read, I think it was uh, Dawkins' book, um, or maybe it could have been Stephen Hawking's, uh, he gave a lecture, and the, um, the woman said, well, that's a very fancy lecture. She's an old lady. Um, but we all know that the Earth is uh, supported by a giant turtle. And Hawking <laughs> said, I thought I was being clever uh, when I said, well, what's holding up the turtle? And she said, well, it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the point is that you cannot have an infinite chain of whatever it is. Turtles, uh, cards, dominoes. For example, if you have a bunch of dominoes that are falling and you get up to the one in front of your feet, if you look in the direction, it cannot stretch out into infinity. It's impossible. It's called a problem of infinite regress. And so one of the premises is that you cannot have an infinite regress. Uh, so, therefore, given causes and effects today, that chain must end sometime in our past, and there must have been a first cause. That first cause cannot have, be, uh, cannot have been the effect of a prior cause. So Aristotle calls it the prime mover, the uncaused cause. And that, he says, is God. Which is somewhat interesting, because you have a beginning. Well, if there's a beginning, there can be no prior beginning. <laughs> right. So well, um, he, he said that uh, you know it's it's like it's removing the problem one step. We're getting into the problems already. Um, I'm not sure we've even fairly set up the argument, but one of the problems is that they'd say, "Well, God's eternal." You know, you say, "What caused God?" And he said, "Well, there is no cause. God's eternal," which uh, actually is an infinite regress problem. <laughs> <laughs> Goes back to the same issue because yeah, yeah. Is, even though they're not uh, infinitely long. A chain of causes, you still have an infinite amount of time or whatever that, that God has existed. Anyway, um, that didn't work out uh, because a um, just flatly stating that, that there's a cause there doesn't make it so. For example, there's an uncaused cause. Yeah. And if you want to say that there's an uncaused cause or a prime mover, um, can't you just say like the greater cosmos is it? You know, whatever quantum fluctuation that our universe came out of couldn't that have been eternal and uncaused? Well, where's the beginning in the quantum fluxes? Uh, right, you, you just don't know. But but why posit something that, that is is what strikes me as a case of special pleading, right? Um, oh, well, this guy's uncaused. Okay, is anyone else in that group? No. <laughs> just this one. Yeah, see, and that's, that's kind of funny. And, I mean, Hitchens even brings that up where he points out that everybody is an atheist. Everybody has some God that they do not believe in, so how is it we know Zeus isn't the one that created all of this? Right, you don't. You have no idea. Uh, they just call whatever created it God. Yeah. Um, so this was, a, this was kind of a fatal flaw in the argument, that you would have a string of causes all necessarily being caused, and then you just sort of declare that the first one doesn't have to be caused. It's a case of special pleading, and, it, and it's, um, it, it really doesn't work. Uh, so they came up with what's called the Kalam cosmological argument to get around this. Uh, and they said that um, whatever 
begins to exist must have had a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore it was caused. But God didn't begin to exist, therefore he does not need a cause. So therefore, God caused the universe. You see, did you see the, the wordplay there? Yeah, and that's all it is, is it's wordplay. It's well, just once again, it. it doesn't beat the main problem, which is the case of special pleading. When you say, whatever begins to exist, other than God, what else is there that's, uh, that has not begun to exist? He's in a category all by himself. So, you can't just take your God and remove him from the constraints that you've placed on the entire universe. Right. Obviously, you can. <laughs> you can't logically do that. Um, it, it's uh, it's a fallacy. It's a case of special pleading. You're trying to treat God differently from everything else, and you give no real reason for it. Uh, you just say, "Well, he's God." Well, well, that's what you're trying to prove, right? Yeah. You can't assume it. And see, that's the amazing thing about all of this is they look at all these causes, and they instantly posit something. Uh, being greater yeah. than ourselves yeah. for those causes. And it makes no sense if you think about it long enough. Right. He, um, Turek, says that whatever caused the universe caused it to begin uh, and caused time to begin. So he has to be without time. He has to be timeless. He caused space to begin, so therefore he has to be without space. He, is, you know, um, he, he uh, has to be uh, infinitely powerful um, to do this. Uh, and he just kind of declares that. He has to be transcendent, you know, above yeah. it. Uh, one of the flaws of this logical leap as well is, who says there's only one God? Why not a committee of gods? Why not three gods who got together, added up their power? And, and aren't you kind of something. overshooting when you... Say it was just one God. Couldn't he have just been lots of powerful? <laughs> Couldn't he have been just powerful enough to create the universe? Why does he have to be infinitely powerful? And why does he have to be timeless? Why can't God die? Yeah, exactly. Uh, why does he have to be timeless just because he created time? Yeah, just because he was powerful enough to create this universe, what's to say that God's not going to die and another's going to take his place? Yeah, and one, one of the big problems that has never been addressed for all these people who claim the cosmological argument gets them to where they want to go is the fallacy of composition. In other words, if you have a brick wall, it is composed of bricks, uh, but the wall itself does not have to have the attributes of the bricks that it is composed out of. So bricks are, say, what, six inches by three inches. Yep. The wall itself, composed of bricks, will not be six inches by three inches. So the, the entire thing does not uh, have to have the same limitations or the same um, structure or whatever, the, the same stuff as what it's composed out of. So when you apply this to the cosmological argument, they say, well, everything has to have a cause. Therefore, the universe itself has to have a cause. That's an unwarranted leap. That's a fallacy of composition. Just because everything inside the universe has to have a cause doesn't mean the universe as a whole has to have a cause. There are so many problems with the cosmological argument that it, it astounds me when these people uh, advance it. Well, see, I mean, that's the amazing part is if he knew enough to actually name it the cosmological argument, you would actually think that he would do some study into the fact that there are so many fallacies in it. Now, curiously enough, I 
think that he knows about the fallacies, and he's just hoping that nobody calls him on them. He may. He keeps pointing to this bench of arguments that he has in reserve, right? I've got all these reserve arguments I don't have time to go into here. But, but it was kind of like an insecurity. Like, if, if you guys don't buy these arguments, i got a whole lot more over Yeah, here. hold on a second. Let me find out what else I can, I can argue with. Ridiculous. And, you're exactly right. I mean, he just kept going on and on about, oh, I've only got 20 minutes for uh, for my time frame, and it was obvious that he was slightly insecure, and then you'd have Hitchens come up. Of course, it may have been because Hitchens was completely plastered, right. who just didn't give a damn. Way too plastered to be insecure. Yeah. Uh, I'm a little disappointed at, at Hitchens. It could have been his inebriated state, but out of all the people who debate, uh, Dawkins is not a philosopher. Um, Dennett probably could have torn this guy a new asshole over this because Dennett is a philosopher. Daniel Dennett um, would have crucified this guy on this argument. Um, but Hitchens is kind of the closest thing out of the big three uh, to being a philosopher. So uh, typically the new atheists are represented by Dawkins, Harris, and Hitchens. Out of those three, um, Harris is like a neuroscientist, um, Dawkins is a biologist. Hitchens, uh, you know, knows literature. He knows yeah, uh, Greek philosophy. He's read. He this doesn't stuff. even watch TV. So yeah, yeah, he may have read it in its original language. Um, the guy's brilliant. Uh, so I was a little disappointed that he didn't even touch on the failings of the cosmological argument. And you know, when you're in a debate like this and your opponent doesn't even glance against the argument, you kind of rightly assume that it, you won that portion of it. Yeah. And so that kind of irritated me. Well, see, and I mean, it could have just been that maybe Hitchens has already hit this argument so many times, he's just kind of looking at this guy going, you know what, I'd rather debate something else. And I mean, that very well could be it, but he you're could absolutely... He have spent two minutes yeah. demolishing it. I mean, but you're absolutely right. It comes down to, if you don't even aim at the argument, then it's instantly chalked up as a win to the opponent. Right. And in this case, I mean, Hitchens demolished him on um, a lot of other grounds. He did say that, you know, that leap from uh, if you've made a case for, and the cosmological argument is really a case not for a theistic God, but for a, a deistic God, a God who kind of winds up the universe and then leaves, right? Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't at all establish that God is a personal God, that he cares about us, that he intervenes in our, our daily lives, uh, or that he has a set of commandments that he wants us to keep. Um, the work, as Hitchens said, is all ahead of you, uh, even if you buy the cosmological argument, which you shouldn't, because it's a terrible argument. Now, i got to admit, there was one statement that Hitchens made that just had me rolling in laughter. He called God Big Brother in the Sky, and instantly I went back to Orwell and you know <laughs> the totalitarian state, and that's exactly what my mind went to. God is a peeping Tom. He's got cameras everywhere. He's staring at us going, oh, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. Go ahead and enjoy the, uh, the passions of that woman. I'll get you. He is. He's a, he's a cosmic voyeur. Not, not only does he watch us, but he watches us uh, and is going to torture us for all of eternity. For what he sees. Exactly. I mean, he's actually taking notes on what yeah. we're doing. Right. How, how dare you people do this, even though God is up there uh, with popcorn apparently enjoying all of it. Well, I see him with popcorn and a telescope aimed right at us going, oh, I, I got you now. But <laughs> All right, so the next argument he advances is the argument from design. 
and he spends a lot of time on this, again, completely oblivious to the fact the argument from design has been destroyed. Um, I think the best person who's done this is David Hume, and it was about 300 years ago. Yeah, and Hume was way well into the beginnings of the Enlightenment. Sure. I mean, yeah. Sure. Um, Enlightenment started, I believe, in the 1600s. Uh, Hume was lived in the uh, 1700s. Yeah, so, I mean, we're talking a very, very short span of time. And one thing that uh, Turek kept hitting on is that we don't know things. He just kept saying, oh, you guys don't know this about the Big Bang. What do you know that was around the Big Bang? What do you know that was before the Big Bang? So on and so forth. Kept hitting on the points that we don't know. And I just sat there the entire time thinking, okay, well, how long did it take to go from the Enlightenment period to the computer age? Just because we don't know something right off the bat isn't a fact that we're never going to know it. It just means that we are working towards it and we don't know it just yet, but we are going to continue questioning it. You, one would think that given the history of mankind, on a one-sided level we have taken supernatural explanations and replaced them always with naturalistic explanations. Never once have we replaced a naturalistic explanation with a supernatural explanation. Given that history, one would think that people would be a little embarrassed to continue making this argument. Well, see, I, I don't know if it comes down to embarrassment or just they're clinging at straws. They should be embarrassed. Let me put it that way. Yeah, well, I'll agree with you. I mean, they should very well be embarrassed. Now, the one thing I find very interesting is that religious people revel in the fact that they know nothing. And I don't know if that's a good stance to take when you're debating somebody, but they revel in the fact that we don't know enough. It's the uh, God of the gaps. They uh, look at science and they say, oh, well, I, I know you guys can understand. You understand this. You can explain that. But look at this here. You can't explain that. Therefore, God. They fit God into these tiny little gaps, which, you know, they're ever closing. As science gets closer and closer to the, the, the truth, those gaps are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, so they're kind of squeezing God into these things, but they love the fact that there are mysteries, and, and they wallow in their ignorance, because they can stick God into that a little unexplained space. Exactly. I mean, it comes down to that if we can't explain something, therefore God. We can't explain why wormholes are jumping around the universe, therefore God is causing these wormholes to jump around. I mean, it, it just comes, it's an argument from ignorance, and for some reason, a lot of religious people like to argue from that platform. You can't explain it, therefore God. Right, which, um, a lack of explanation, for those religious people who are listening, a lack of explanation does not provide positive evidence for anything. It just means we don't know. That's it. Plain and simple. So the argument from design, um, as we, we were talking about, um, I think the best takedown of this was Hume. Now, there are two arguments from design. One is that uh, these things appear to be designed. So they are uh, so complex that they appear to be designed. And we've um, actually covered this already on the, on the show. Uh, we did? Very vaguely. It was quick, uh, the, the watchmaker stumbling across it. Yeah, um, William Paley. Uh, watchmaker, we did, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> it seems I've stumped you. I'm sorry, <laughs> did, did you not want to cover it again? 
Probably not. Wasn't that just last week's episode where we covered argument from design? I think it might have been. All right. So, well, we'll gloss over that very quickly. Um, so, so two counter-arguments to it. One is that uh, there's a difference between complexity and artifice. And uh, with the painter and the painting and the building and the builder, uh, we know that this happens because uh, of the artifice that's involved. We yeah. know that, that it has been painted by a painter because we're familiar with painting. Yeah, we have painters. experience with that. Therefore, we can posit that as evidence of a painter. And Hume <clears throat> said uh, that the argument from complexity is an analogy. And these... Uh, Analogical arguments um, necessarily have, they compare two different things. And so the more similar the two things are, the stronger the analogy. And unfortunately, in this, where you're, uh, this argument where you're comparing a finite, limited human with limited intelligence and a finite lifespan, limited power, I guess you'd say, to an infinite, omnibenevolent, omniscient, omnipowerful, uh, uh, eternal God, uh, their two things could not be further apart. So the argument completely breaks down. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a bad argument on its face. Just because things are complex doesn't mean that they're designed. What was that movie? And plus, if, if, if you're defeating the entire argument by positing something that's more complex than the stuff that you have to explain in the first place. Yeah. And when they say, okay, uh, the eye is really complex, therefore God, uh, then you say, well, if the eye required a designer, how much more does God require a designer? Oh, he doesn't. Well, he again, doesn't. he case just of, automatically exists. Case of special pleading, right? Yeah. Uh, you cannot solve the problem by positing. The problem itself is complexity. If you posit something that's more complex, you've just widened the problem. You know, every time I hear about people, or you compare God with humans. You have humans that are weak, we're feeble, we get diseases, so on and so forth. Then you have God that's all-powerful, all-knowing, something of that sort. What was that movie with Bruce Willis where he got into that train wreck that the villain set up to find out how how uh, strong he was? It was the, it was the comic oh, book. Unbreakable. Unbreakable. That's exactly what I think when people compare man with God. I see people sitting there thinking... Well, if I'm on this side of the spectrum, I am on the breakable side, then obviously there must be somebody on the other side of the spe spectrum, somebody that's all-powerful, all-strong. And that's, that's the exact thing I see when people start arguing from this platform. It's almost the, you, you've almost encapsulated the ontological argument. <laughs> um, we don't even have to keep bringing that up. Cause, yeah, that was refuted, I think, about 20 years after it was, it was posited by Anselm. Um, in his own day, by the, the this guy, I think wrote a little article called "The Greatest Possible Island," and it, it was ridiculous. Anyway, um, people still talk about it today, but Turek didn't advance the ontological argument. No, he didn't. That was just my um, own positing. Of although the, the ontological argument may be waiting on the bench, just in case. Well, you know, he did have a lot of things Good. just sitting down there God. that he was waiting to hit. Uh, two things I wanted to hit on uh, the argument from design. One, um, he mentioned specified complexity. This is the idea by William Dembski that uh, complexities such as codes are uh, what's called specified complexity. And that, ha that is evidence for design. There's a, he has like this design filter. So uh, he claims that the, like the search for extraterrestrial uh, intelligence and that sort of thing uses his design filter. Never seen any evidence of that. Um, and I think he's a little bit unhinged. I think he's a little crazy if you listen to him give interviews and stuff like that. I think he's a little crazy. Baylor doesn't want anything to do with him now. I think they booted him out and, and the good riddance. He keeps trying to get back. But um, specified complexity is almost not worth 
countering because uh, the term specified complexity assumes what is it trying to prove. Yeah. If someone has specified this complexity, obviously that there there is a specifier. It's a circular argument. I think it's it's terrible. Yeah. However, it sounds very good and very scientific, which would turn a lot of people to thinking about it. Which yeah. obviously. That's exactly what Turk is trying to do. If he doesn't understand the significance of his own argument, or if he does, then he's just hoping to win over the audience by tossing out something that sounds good. Right. Let me let me help Dembski out. And Dembski, to his credit, I think, has actually backed off on the idea of specified complexity because it just really doesn't pan out. Um, but let me help Dembski just in case he's considering um, writing Maybe another book it. on it. Yeah. The, the genetic code... Is a uh, is an analogy. It's a story that we tell uh, to help people understand DNA in an abstract way. It's a it's a really easy way of simplifying the concept. Okay, it's like a cipher. You know, this uh, string of base pairs, this this triplet base pairs, acts as a codon, and it, when that goes through a little machine. It attaches, uh, you know, through um, the transfer RNA, it attaches a single amino acid. So this codon matches up with this acid. That analogy of code, it does not, uh, <laughs> is not a, a straight analogy to what we think of as ciphers and codes. Uh, it's not the same thing. There are not little letters that are being placed in there with punctuation and commas. Uh, it, it makes a protein instead of a sentence. So you cannot say, uh, like like I've heard some people say, um, here's a sentence. Now let's mutate the sentence, <laughs> then uh, you don't get a, uh, a meaningful sentence. Therefore, evolution doesn't occur. Guys, it's just an analogy. It's just a story. It's not a one-on-one -on -one comparison. You have it doesn't no go idea. through. You have no idea how many times I've heard this idea of DNA code that you're you're bringing forward right now, and it's it's actually. It's very interesting to sit on the outside of this conversation because, once again, those who don't know enough sit there and they nod at each other going, well, that makes sense, that right. makes sense. And those of you sitting on the outside, you're just putting your head in your hands going, please think about it just a little bit longer than just accepting that it follows what you believe. Right. Um, so you pick like a single word that, that's any given length, um, let's say utility, and you replace that word with another random one, and you're not going to get any any word really that that makes sense. Um, very difficult, especially a sentence, you know. And you yeah. start jumbling around random letters. Um, but the fact is, the the DNA code is, is redundant. Um, so most mutations are not, in fact, negative mutations. They they're not harmful. Most mutations are neutral, because typically th there are 63 or 64 codons and only 20 amino acids. That means, on average, there are three codons for each amino acid. And the term for most, the most common uh, redundancy here is a, a wobble at the third base pair, because you'll have um, like AAG and AAT and AAA, and uh, all of those will code for the same thing, right? And so you can wobble that third base pair. They'll be, have like looser bonds um, and you can substitute a C for a G, or uh, you know an A for a G, and you end up with the exact same the exact amino same acid function. So that mutation same, yeah. means nothing because it's the exact same string of amino acids. Um, most of them are neutral, and even if you you knock out um, or, or put in a different amino acid, if it's not at the binding site, 
where the real action occurs, or if it doesn't interfere with the folding of the protein, it, it, it is neutral. It doesn't make a difference. These point mutations are mostly neutral. The ones that almost always are, are harmful or deleterious are frame shift mutations because it's read in, th in frames of three codons, right? Yeah. So if you knock one of those codons out, suddenly you're in a different frame, and that's really going to kill your protein because it's a completely... Now, instead of you're reading AAC, you're going to be reading ACT as that thing, and you're going to get totally different. Uh, now, so often a deletion is, is going to be a frame shift mutation. It's going to screw you up. I've probably lost the majority of the audience here, so we'll move on. Did you have a question? I, don't, I did. I don't think I want I, to explain I don't think that. we want to go any deeper in that. That's why I stopped myself. Into a whole lot more because, detail. I mean... Wake up. <laughs> um, now that we've bored you to death, the main thank point, you, Dr. Charles the Morrison. The main point is that most of these mutations are not... And don't let people sell you on this. Most mutations are not, as common uh, layperson thinks, harmful or deleterious. Most mutations are neutral. All right. Having beat that one to death... I really think we should move on to the moral argument that uh, right. that he brought up. I mean, this this is his third part. This is his third part is bringing up the morals of it, and uh, and this one Hitchens doesn't spend any time on at all. No, other than saying that that um, you know atheists can be moral too, and atheists know the difference between good and evil, and um, we can be decent people too. And do you really think that? It took the Jews, you know, all these thousands of years uh, up until God brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai and until they figured out that murder was wrong. Don't you think they knew that before? I mean, that's kind of... Uh, yeah. But he doesn't actually lay a groundwork for how evolutionary theory provides for morals. No, he doesn't. In fact, what he says exactly is that morals come from God. If you have no God, therefore you have no morals. So this is Turek. He's laying out his argument that we have these things that are called morals and morality. And uh, atheists have no language because we're all materialists. We have no language with which to describe. We have no model, and we have to borrow these models from Christianity. From Christianity. And, you know, the thing that just really, really irritated me is he's saying morals come from God. But if morals come from God, why is it morals don't go across the board? And what I mean by this is... If you have a thief in another country, they're caught, their hand is chopped off. But this country is religious. They can still be Christian. They can still be religious. However, if you had the same thing happen here in America, that would be considered too far or immoral. So where exactly is the line of morality that we're drawing here? They'll take one step back and they'll say there are certain universals. For example, throughout almost all of societies, uh, it, it is viewed as immoral to steal, or immoral to lie, or immoral to kill, and that these are almost universal across uh, societies. So therefore, uh, God, because the only way you get that universal agreement with these big with these big ideas is if there were one God who created this. Of course not. It, it, it never enters into their mind that it could have been somebody's sitting there, they've gathered something, and somebody comes and takes it, they don't like that. Well, right. Um, it certainly could have been that we have all, all evolved uh, under the same conditions. And if you look at uh, fairness testing in chimpanzees, for example, they will give like uh, two chimpanzees a nut and they'll both eat it. 
and if they'll give uh, one chimpanzee a nut and the other guy a grape, the chimpanzee who gets a nut will get angry because he's had grapes before and he knows that they're better. And so he'll throw the nut at the other chimpanzee. He's, he's <laughs> mad that it's unfair. I mean, these basic concepts of justice and fairness aren't unique to humans. No. They're throughout the primates. However, an argument from a God-based would be that God created these, so therefore they can still have possess a small bit of God's morals. However, what... I thought humans were unique. I thought that it was only us that God gave the light of Christ and the ability to tell the difference between good and evil. The animals didn't have any of that. Depends on the religion. I guess. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it all comes down to, if you think on it, just... For a few minutes, you can start to think about the chain in history, where you start to learn that if you kill somebody without warrant, then others are going to be upset at you for killing them, whether it's this other person's family, their friends, so on and so forth, or even if you kill somebody and it is warranted, it's still going to piss off somebody. So we're talking thousands and thousands of years of us learning these little intricacies and then inbreeding them into our children. Not only inbreeding it, but teaching it to our children as we grow up. If you steal from somebody, they will get upset. That seems like a very, very simple concept to me that is actually trained into children, and I don't understand how God can be even thrown into that if all of a sudden we all know that thievery, murder is wrong. Where exactly is God in that? Yeah, first of all, I mean, the, these guys always put the cart before the horse. You know, he thinks he's established the existence of God, but he hasn't. Clearly, um, he has failed to establish the existence of God. He is using crappy, horrible arguments that have been pre-refuted. Um, so you really have to establish the existence of God before you say anything else about morals and deriving from God. But um, if you want to get into the evolutionary um, ideas about how we got morality, you have to go back to the... Uh, conditions under which we evolved as a species and spent the longest amount of time. And that was hunting and gathering. Small tribes of humans or primates hunting and gathering um, in conditions where we're being predated on. Um, there are predators following us around. It's dangerous. Um, this fosters cooperation. For survival. For pure survival. Uh, it fosters what's called reciprocal altruism. In other words, if you um, are, are, are wandering, looking for food, and, and you uh, spend all of your life within a, a small period, a small geographical area, and other tribes come in and they kind of come around and contact those geographical areas, if you trade honestly and fairly your berries and the stuff that you've gathered for his flint, you know, if you take advantage of him, he ain't coming back. No. You, you have just... Um, won the battle but lost the war because he won't be coming back with his flint anymore if what you gave him isn't valuable. Exactly. Um, so this stuff, uh, you you um, try to help other people out so that you know you'll come in contact with them again and hopefully when you're in trouble they'll help you out. So these morals are nothing more than uh, uh, survival instincts. Not only instincts but just everyday observances. Just sitting there and observing if I treat this person nicely and treat them well, they, more than, often than not, will treat me well. However, if they do not treat me well, I turn aside from them because obviously they haven't learned this set right. of observances. I would argue that the, the, the understanding of justice and fairness predates 
conscious thought. Oh, I agree with you entirely. I mean, we're talking grunting days. Right, right. When they had no language and no no capability of abstract thought whatsoever. If you want to posit, I believe that naturally groups of humans who cooperated together naturally survived a whole lot better than groups of humans that were killing each other and at each other's throats. Uh, I think, evolutionarily speaking, that trait, uh, and actually, if you talk about kin selection as well, you know, they always wonder, you know, there's no evolutionary explanation for altruism, um, and yet altruism occurs, so therefore evolution is false. So then they, and they'll talk about, like, these prairie dogs that'll go up there and they'll uh, screech in order to draw the predators toward, toward them, them while, everybody while everyone else escapes. escapes. So how do you explain this behavior? Well, actually, if you are related to the other prairie dogs um, genetically, if you look at selection genetically, if one organism gets eaten, but his genes, which are spread out in his brothers and sisters and parents Survive. and children, if those genes collectively survive, then actually the, they will be spread on to the next generation. So you are rewarded for kin selection. If you sacrifice yourself, but your genes, which are all there, they're passed on in, in your kin, uh, those genes will go. They'll spread out through and, and they'll, they'll survive. So you're actually, evolutionarily, you're rewarded for altruism under those circumstances. Well, see, and not only that, but you can actually see morality developing in chimps. I mean, right now, you can go and you can watch chimps have war. They call them chimp wars. They, right. they gather up groups, they go and they attack other people, or not people, other chimps. Right. And I think that will be limited probably. I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll fight back and forth. Um, and if you go extinct, and then that's it, right? Yeah. But you'll yeah. kind of limit yourself. Once your resources uh, get dwindling, then I think those fights become more fierce. Yeah. Because you want your group to survive and you don't want your enemies to, to yeah. survive. But if there's tons and tons of resources out there, I'm not sure that intertribal warfare would be very productive. No, no, I don't think it would be. And, I mean, this is, this is the whole fascinating point of it all, is that you have Turek out here who doesn't have the imagination involved to even think a step or two beyond what he's stating. There is very little difference between human beings and chimpanzees. I would challenge anyone to come up with a definition of human being that includes people who are mentally challenged, IQs around 70 or below, but excludes at the same time chimpanzees. Chimpanzees use tools. Yes, they do. They teach. They innovate. They spread these innovations culturally. There really is no way of failing to include chimpanzees in your definition or stopping yourself from excluding some of the uh, least intelligent members of our species. There is a lot of overlap there. Yeah. What, what, what got me also about Turek is he goes on and on about, uh, and he tries to attack Hitchens multiple times. He says, where do you get your concept of evil from? When you break a law, who are you disappointing? Uh, whose law are you breaking? As if an authoritarian structure or model of ethics is the only model out there. As if he has absolutely no idea about Aristotle's virtue ethics about uh, Immanuel Kant's deontological. Uh, he has no idea about the categorical imperative. John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism. David Hume's communitarianism. None of these are authoritarian models of ethics. They are all uh, secular versions of ethics that do not require someone from on high giving you rules to live by. 
I mean, there are no laws in virtue ethics. No. You're not breaking any laws. You're just trying to act in the most virtuous manner possible in between that golden mean in between two vices. Um, in utilitarianism, the main law, if you want to call it, it's more of a precept, is that you want to act in such a way that you maximize the benefit or you minimize the harm to people. The categorical imperative is a little more difficult to, to squish into. To squish a, into just a couple uh, yeah. seconds. Yeah. But it's basically yeah. act in such a manner that you can universalize uh, your action or behavior. Um, and if you cannot universalize this action or behavior, then it is immoral. In other words, if you tell the truth, you can see a world. It makes logical sense where everyone tells the truth. If, if, you, if you think about telling a lie, if everyone told a lie, there would be no such thing as, as the, truth. the truth. Therefore, there would be no such thing as a lie. It, it logically doesn't make sense. So that's his categorical imperative. Communitarianism was Hume's uh, attempt at kind of setting up a new theory of ethics, whereas you're kind of um, bringing the ideals and, and precepts and laws of your community, because those are the ones that, that have survived over time. Yeah. Uh, they're tried and tested and true, uh, and use those ideals to kind of live by. Well, see, I mean, that's an excellent point. I mean, these code of ethics, morals, whatever you want to call them, they are tried and true truths that we have discovered over years and years and years of experience. So you, you can't just sit there and say, we have morals, therefore God. Absolutely right. One of the main uh, things Christians say about Jesus, he was such an amazing innovator that he came up with all these great ideas like uh, be kind to your neighbor, turn the other cheek, um, all this stuff, you know, love your enemies. Uh, it turns out that there's very, very little that he actually came up with. When he says love your neighbors yourself and um, love your God with all your might, mind, heart, and strength, that stuff is from um, the Old Testament. Yeah. When he says uh, stuff like turn your uh, turn, turn the, the other, other cheek, cheek. Yeah. Um, uh, and love your enemies, um, you know all that stuff. That stuff is in the Mishnah. It's in the, these rabbinic writings. That stuff was going around the exact same time that Jesus was, probably predated him. And uh, I believe Socrates even said, uh, as, as I mentioned before, had that idea of um, like turning the other cheek or loving your enemies. I mean, it, it, this is not. You know, um, there's very, very, very little innovation uh, from Jesus, actually. Yeah, well, it, it always kind of interests me as to why, although I agree there were very few innovations. I mean, this is something we were around for thousands of years before even Jesus popped up. And so these aren't exactly big surprises in that community. And it's just very interesting to me that people would latch on to Jesus so tightly that they would bring him into this day and age where... Now he's, well, depending on the religion, a god. And people love him because he's all for the underdog, right? He's, for the, he's a champion of the oppressed. Uh, but that's all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, if you look at, um, God, how about the patriarchs, right? You look at yeah. Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older brother. He was supposed to get the inheritance. Who ends up with it? Jacob. Well, he deserved uh, it more, I'm sure. <laughs> David is like the seventh son. Um, he's the younger. There, there's this recurrent theme um, Joseph, one of the younger brothers, um, almost the youngest, right? But he, he ends up kind of ruling over the rest of them. Uh, uh, women, Ruth and uh, Hagar. You know, God never really had a personal appearance to Abraham, but he, he makes a personal appearance to Hagar and telling her to, to go back um, and, and you're, you're pregnant and take care of your son. 
but he never has a personal appearance. I think Abraham hears his voice, but he doesn't ever see him. But he, God makes a personal appearance to Hagar, a woman. Um, Must have been the shrooms. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and Ruth and Esther, and, and uh, you know, the, it's filled with stories where the oppressed, uh, it kind of turns, and they, they become, you know, the rulers, these oppressed people. You know, I and can actually see where you're going with I mean, that's yeah. exactly right, because, I mean, you've got a world where very few people are actually in the upper classes, and you have all these lower classes that are seeing the underdog. Yep. And you're probably exactly right. That is probably exactly why people latched onto Jesus so tightly, because this underdog, although crucified by the upper classes, came back three days later and conquered. Yeah. One of the main criticisms when Christianity started becoming big enough to be noticed by the empire, uh, one of the main criticisms the pagans had was that Christianity was converting waves and waves of illiterate, unwashed, uneducated masses, slaves and women, they said. Um, where are your educated, you know, men? So it certainly seemed like it was very, very popular amongst the oppressed. And I, I guarantee you, in every civilization, every society, there are more oppressed than there are oppressors, by definition. Oh, I can guarantee that anywhere you go, even in America. And it still resonates, um, you know. Well, Jesus loves me even though I'm poor and um, no one else likes me. At least I have Jesus. At least I have Jesus. Jesus loves an underdog because exactly. he was one himself. And, and he did. You know, you, that's the, the whole idea of the apocalyptic uh, message that he had where there's going to be this massive turnover. Uh, unfortunately, he says that it would happen in his generation <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, let's before just this generation passes part. away, let's not, let's, let's not go into that. <laughs> you yeah. will see the kingdom of God coming in power. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, it's definitely apocalyptic. All right, so is there anything else we want to talk about that debate? I wanted to hit that stuff because um, I don't think Hitchens really tapped it, really, really uh, answered it very well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I agree with you. I mean, I listened to the debate, and there were a few things where. I mean, instantly I was groaning as uh, as Turk was bringing these things up, and then I'd sit there and I'd wait for Hitchens to hit it, and he wouldn't, and then I'd yep. feel kind of disappointed about it. So I think we actually hit the major points that Hitchens missed. Great. All right. Uh, next week, another rousing podcast.